0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The show is Radio Marinara, the station is 3RRR. This is the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Dr Beach. And I'm Cade Mills.
1: How you going, Cade? Oh, uh, autumn's hit. You know how I knew autumn had hit? Because today, this morning, I got in my car and the air conditioner was on. So I had to switch from air conditioning to heating and it's always that autumn thing. You still get those nice warm days, you're out driving later in the day, you've got the air conditioner on, it's nice and warm and then you get up in the morning and it's cold.
0: It is a little bit cold. We had the heater going last night. Oh, I haven't quite got there
1: yet. Yeah. yeah. I, I, thought, I thought it was a bit extravagant,
0: whacking it on, but um, somebody else in the house thought, yeah, we needed that. It's just yeah. a little bit chilly. It was the dog actually. <laughs> <laughs> She's a whippet. Yeah, she's a very skinny whippet, and she's um, cuddled up under the doona right now as we speak. And we're also joined in the studio by Fom Charco. How are you going, Fom?
2: Good morning.
0: You're joining us today.
2: Yes. This I is am. my first
0: program with you. Oh right. Yeah, I've been. T- what you haven't noticed?
3: <laughs> <laughs> you were well, here the whole who time, person? Peter. Oh no, I, you're I, not here.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's right. I was going to say we've been trying to avoid the two of you meeting, but there would be no yeah, reason. it, for that
2: it kind at all. of feels like you're always there because I hear you on the radio, so I'm already familiar with your voice. You know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is only my second show
0: for the year, and I'm really looking forward to being back here. We have a busy show ahead of us. Uh, Fom, you're going to kick off with um, a couple of things about. Zebrafish going crazy?
2: Yeah, well, nanoplastics, really. Um, the l- last month I was in talking about microplastics and uh, the dangers of microplastics in the environment and how we as people need to really pay attention to that kind of stuff for our own health as well. And I kind of we, we kind of started uh, going into the even smaller realm of plastic pollution, which is nanoplastics, which is a size smaller, again, obviously, than the microplastics. So uh, I promised Ron I would talk about that today.
1: Excellent. Oh, and we should actually say, get well, Bron. Oh, we should, she'll yeah. be yeah, listening yeah. at home. Bron's we cozied
0: we? up a bit. Well, not, not not by choice. She has um, influenza A, is going to knock down a few of us this season, but um, Bron's right there at the bleeding edge. Um, and she's trusted the whole thing to you, Peter. Well, not, not entirely to me. To <laughs> you, and, and you guys keep calling me by not Dr. B. Oh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, there goes the no, superhero no, disguise! No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we gave away the Everyone superhero. disguise Everyone knows disco-
0: that my name's John now.
2: Batman, <laughs> Batman's been exposed. <laughs> it has been exposed,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Get well, Bron. Uh, we we are looking forward very much to seeing you um, back in these hallowed halls of Three Triple R. Uh, and that, uh, so forms on first, and then we have Georgia Nesta young phd student
1: we do she's sort of been doing a tour of the east coast um doing some water collection for edna on weedy sea dragons but she also just recently finished up her honors looking at signathids um and using edna and metabarcoding to sort of detect them so she's going to come in and give us a bit of a chat about what she did during honors thesis and what she plans to do during her phd before she jets off back home to western australia it's always good
0: to hear from um from the younger generation from the um From the young
1: PhD students, particularly someone who's over here from WA she's from Curtin, I believe. She is from Curtin, yeah. And that's the thing too, I find as PhD students tend to know a hell of a lot more than they think. They know a lot more than the other people around. Yeah. (laughs) Well well, yeah. Yeah. They always undersell themselves, I think. So once you get them talking, you find out that you know they could basically
0: run this show and the next show and the show after. They talk for hours. Yeah, that's right. And You mentioned a word there, synaphids, and um, I guess she's going to explain that to us. But it's horses and dragons, really, of the C type. It's <laughs> a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah, and EDNA. I'm looking forward to hearing <laughs> lots about ED and AEDNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. Yes. Environmental type. And maybe that's Georgia there. I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's good to read. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I'm going to get a bit of time at the end of the show because I'm running it today, so I get to speak. And I'm going to talk about um, I'm going to talk about the increase in global shipping and the implications that has for distributing pests around the world. We've already seen many, many different examples of that, but there's been a really good study which has just come out in one of the Nature journals, which is predicting the actual. Increase in shipping that we're going to see between now and 2050 and it's quite astounding to think that what's, you know, going to be carried by those things around the world. And then I'm going to kind of wrap that up a little bit with looking at something which is not quite marine but amphibians do live in the aquatic environment. Um, Some of them do get into the, um, you know, into the seashore a little bit. Uh, The decline in those, global decline in amphibians because of world trade. Um, I'm going to connect both of those two. Wow, we're going everywhere today. We are going we? everywhere. Yeah, going yeah, it's going to be a big show. Yep. So
1: let's get into it. But before that, a um, bit of news, a bit of weather from you, Cade? Yeah, well, I'll go with the news first. And this was just a quick one. I think this is something we'll hopefully get to talk about more later. But there was just a recent study come out in marine policy, which is also from over Western Australia, so University of Western Australia. And one of the main finding was findings was that 70% of recreational fishers actually support no-take marine zones or marine sanctuaries. So this sort of, I guess, flies in the face and contradicts the perception that fishermen are against no-take zones. They found that basically there's a bit of apprehension in the getting the no-take area in to begin with, But then after time, fishermen actually come to appreciate them and actually enjoy having them there. And basically the main, I guess... They they, can see the benefits. They can see the benefits, and particularly once they've been there for a long time. So after about 10, 15 years is when they start to basically almost adopt them as their own. But one of the main things coming out is that there's been a lot of, um, I guess, news and media around governments being sort of... Coerced by fishing lobbies and fishing groups into sort of stopping the extension of marine parks and putting more marine parks in. And what they're basically suggesting is that fishermen actually are quite open to the idea of it. It's just that they need to go out and actually talk to the anglers, I guess, on the ground, so to speak, as opposed to the representatives and sort of have more of a conversation with the actual anglers themselves when it comes to putting them in place. So I know, I think in Victoria, we've got a halt on any new marine protection areas and they had similar problems in sydney so it's just sort of you know we need to reopen this conversation yeah. and we need to start looking at this particularly as you leading into your topic later in the afternoon about the impacts that we're having on a marine environment yeah not, not in the afternoon i think we don't think we're going to
0: push we're not past, past <laughs> later o'clock. on today it yes. might be other people who would get upset by that um and the weather what's happening
1: the weather well Today, it is going to be a lovely top of 18. Um, I think we've got some reasonably light winds. No, we've got west northwesterly winds, 15 to 25 kilometres, increasing to 30 kilometres before turning southwest. So, if you're out there and thinking for going for a surf, basically the protected corners are going to be your best spots um, and get in early before the wind turns. And then for the rest of the week, tomorrow we've got 17 degrees. Tuesday 23 with an overnight low of 8, so autumn is definitely here. Wednesday 23 and partly cloudy, Thursday 24, Friday again back to 27, so Friday's the day to get back out in the sun, and then Saturday 25. So we've got typical autumn weather. Ah, uh, Very nice.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to those kind of mid-20s later on the week.
4: Estamos escuchando Radio Marinada en 3 R.
0: Yeah, that said, uh, regular marinara on three uh, triple. I'm Dr. Beach, I'm um, um, joined by Fom Sharko in the audi in, in the audience. I guess you could call it. It's not really the audience. It's the studio. <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah, all about yeah. me.
1: No, it is. We're all just here watching you, Dr. Beach.
2: Audience. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and there it is. Paneling this morning, and of course we have Cade Mills, who you just heard. Fom, you've been thinking about microplastics.
2: Yeah, a lot. I think about it a lot, yeah. Um, well, today we're actually going to talk a little bit about nanoplastics, which, are, which is basically the well the next level down, isn't it? Because um, a micrometer is a thousand nanometers and a millimeter is a million nanometers. so that, that gives you a bit of scale here, so you can't see that stuff with the naked eye.
0: Yeah, we're going from 10 to the minus six for a yeah. micrometer down to 10 to the minus nine meters for a nanometer.
2: yeah, so it's, uh, it's pretty pretty small, um, even for microscopes. <clears throat> So um, it it makes sense that microplastics, once they're down there in the environment, they're broken up pieces of larger items, and so it makes sense that they keep doing that. They keep breaking up into smaller and smaller pieces. But the interesting thing about nanoplastics is that they start behaving very differently. They start interacting with the environment in a very different way from microplastics. So one of those examples is that if a fish or any other animal ingests a microplastic of that size um it can easily poo it out again right it depends a little bit on how big the creature is but the problem with nanoplastics is that they are so small they are so tiny that they can actually enter through the cell walls of organisms so let that sink in for a bit right i mean you don't cell walls are really really intelligent uh membranes hence the insane in the membrane song just (laughs) a reference there for cypress hill thank you very much for that song guys um So, uh, uh, cell membranes are really intelligent uh, lipid layers. They consist of of fats, barriers of fats interspersed with proteins that act as kind of sentinels. Um, So these proteins they let in particular uh, chemicals and proteins and food and things like that, and they will also um, excrete things like the waste products of the cell. uh,
0: They're a selective barrier. Yeah, they 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 let in what the the cells most of the time want to come in and and enable the export of the things that they need to get out.
2: Yeah, and a cell membrane consists of hundreds of different of these proteins and they all have very specific types of things that they let in and out. So it's a little bit like uh, going into Fort Knox and, you know, you get like a retina scan... Or uh, you have to put your hand on uh, <laughs> you know, on one of those reader things and they read your <laughs> fingerprints and if it says like, yes, you are a protein that we would like in our cell, then they open up and they let you in. So it's, it's pretty hectic. Um. Or
0: anything else really. I mean, it doesn't even have to be a protein, does it? Yeah, any, like anything else that the cell like,
2: needs. Yeah. yeah salts. Now the problem with these, these nanoplastics is they really like fats. So we already established that plastics are hydrophobic, so they don't like water, but they do dissolve readily in fats. So what happens is when they're so tiny they can actually move right through that lipid layer. So they don't even they so don't they, even they go don't, through the they doors. Don't, they
0: don't have to go through the protein gates.
2: Mm, that's right. So they, they can go through those lipid layers and get into the cells. Sometimes, depending on the type of plastic, they will actually aggregate in the cell membrane and clump together and form like little spheres. So you can imagine that is a breach of security, right? That's yeah. like basically coming in through the wall and saying, hi, there is a hole here. Please come <laughs> in, pathogens. Um so, so that is a, a major problem in um, in well basically all kinds of animals so it's been studied in rotifers which is a part of zooplankton they are tiny microorganisms about 170 micrometers and they eat algae so they are really part of that zooplankton clouds that so many animals depend on um, for eating um, and the problematic thing about having nanoplastics inside your cells is not just that there is a piece of plastic in your cell but in the cell is also where the you know those prime metabolic processes take place including the expression of dna and the expression of genes so they've already found that having these nanoplastics inside the cells of microorganisms or larger organisms even it really messes with their fertility so reproduction of rotifers for example went down when they tested it um, they have a lot more uh, problems living out their full lifespan as well so it really impacts on them And another problem with that is last time we talked about other molecules absorbing to microplastics, right? So toxins that are already floating in in the marine environment being absorbed onto that plastic and getting into the guts of of fish and, and larger mammals and things like that. Well, nanoplastics still do the same thing. So they will actually be a little bit like a Trojan horse. So they'll come into that cell You know, wearing their trench coat, and once they're in, they open up the trench coat, and there's like all the machine guns there. You know, and they say, "Surprise!"
1: So, what sort of things attach to them? We were talking about that last time. So, heavy metals. um. Yeah, uh,
2: but uh, uh, persistent organic pollutants called POPs or POPS. um, So that could be heavy metals as well but also things like uh, fertilizers um, you know artificial uh, pesticides that kind of thing and fire retardants which is a class of, of, of very very harmful molecules in the environment and um, yeah that, that causes <laughs> a really big problem no, I just got a question Sorry I sorry I put my peep, hand peep up to say I, was, say I wanted peep to ask a question Yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure No if no I was no no stop no, talking no, okay. no, no 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 just, just, just
3: yeah. saying... Please I'd love to ask, to ask you a question. So are, are nanoplastics just uh, microplastics that are a lot smaller?
2: Yes, exactly.
3: So right. they so are so broken, they, basically broken down further. Yeah, into right. smaller
2: and smaller pieces. Yeah. So that's
0: the data. Like, microplastics will then become nanoplastics yeah. if, Essentially. if left in the Exactly.
2: And, and it will start getting smaller and smaller until you just have the molecular polymer chains left that are floating around. And we have no idea what what that is going to do. Yeah. Um, so so that that is the problem with nanoplastics um, really for them to be a trojan horse and really bring those molecules that you do not want to have in your cell in, into the cells. Follow-up question. So you
3: said that the the microplastics are fat soluble or oh, sorry nanoplastics are fat or they like so f- fat they plastics in
2: general because they're made out of oil <laughs> um, they are hydrophobic so it means that they repel yeah. water yeah. and they like to bind and and kind of uh, absorb into other molecules that are fatty
3: oh but they don't actually break down themselves within that Or they do.
2: I I was just thinking,
3: like, you're talking about the the nanoplastics being inside the cell membrane. Yeah,
2: sometimes they do. It depends a little bit on the type of plastic. So I think things like polyethylene and polypropylene are two of those plastics that when a nanoparticle comes into that lipid layer of the cell membrane, it will actually dissolve in there. Um, And that also makes the cell more... um, sensitive to pathogens so they did this uh, test on the rotifers again those microorganisms where they fed them with nanoplastics and they fed them with nanoplastics with toxins on them and then they Basically, just gave them two kinds of chemicals to see what their resistance, their natural resistance, was against these chemicals. And they found that the group that had nano that had ingested nanoplastics that went into their tissues and was, weren't excreted, um, they were a lot less resistant to these other toxins that they then put into the seawater that they were living in. And uh, yeah, these toxins were things like triclosan, which is the antibacterial agent we find in many cleaning products, including that gel that you use to uh, disinfect your hands. And the other one, I had a bit of a chuckle here, it's called BDE47, which is a uh, kind of antimicrobial... Um, stuff, BDE, um, because I'm Dutch, that is actually the acronym for near-death experience. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I thought, oh, these poor Rodifors. They're sitting, there in, their, they're sitting there in their oh. aquarium, reading the label on the bottle and thinking, like, oh, my God, we're all going to die. Um, and then they are, yeah.
1: And that, yeah, so it is a near-death experience for yeah, them. Yeah,
2: definitely, yeah.
1: yeah. Do we have any idea how much nanoplastics are out there. So there's a lot of work done, you know, microplastics and the abundance and that, but I assume it's a hell of a lot harder to study and get an idea of abundances of them. Do we have any idea? Is there anyone out there trying Uh, to work this out?
2: I'm sure there are people trying to do the calculations, but it is really hard because you have to measure all that stuff and it's really hard to measure nanoplastics in a litre of water because it is so, so tiny. Um, But you can imagine that, you know, microplastics quantification has already started. So I'm sure there are people doing work out there with models and things like that, trying to quantify that Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, Yeah, I can imagine the results would be pretty scary. Yeah. um,
1: (laughs) You'd almost assume that pretty much most things in the sea would have nanoplastics sort of yeah, in, just like we're finding anywhere, microplastics
2: yeah. in, in pretty much all the organisms. I mean, even in the deep sea, right? Which is yeah. what we talked about last time. Um, but yeah, so for the higher organisms, in zebrafish, uh, it has been proven that it actually, the nanoplastics will cross the blood brain barrier and they will mess with the dopamine. Um, levels in fish as well so they get all kinds of weird behaviors it messes with their motor neuron you know with their with their motor skills basically so they start twitching and stuff like that Um, yeah which is pretty scary because you know i mean we we differ from fish surely Uh, but if we look at the research in mice you know in mice nanoplastics can get in the bloodstream and things like that so there is definitely
0: are they seeing behavioural differences in mice?
2: Yes, because it's also messes with their brains. So it's, um, yeah, listeners, if you need any more reason to stop using single-use plastics, this would be <laughs> reason number three hundred
0: and fifty-five. Did I? D- I mean, so on that very point, stop using single-use plastics. Somebody said to me last night, um, and thanks, Jay. I think it was you, um, that. The EU is banning single-use plastics. Yes, we're seeing
2: this. We're seeing this all over the place now. There are bans. I mean, from a local level, you know, banning single-use plastics in different councils, even here in Victoria, that's that's starting to really get going now. Up to you know the entire EU. So it's it's a pretty exciting time. It um, is very all exciting. These, all these changes. Yeah. I'm
0: wondering about something just like, say, toothpaste.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How's that going to be distributed to to it without i mean that's a single use plastic
2: yeah well toothpaste is one of those things that we how how long have we been using toothpaste really not really that long really Um, i don't use toothpaste i make my own tooth powder and i make it out of sodium bicarbonate with a little bit of essential oil of peppermint um, and a little bit of uh, ground up um, black carbon to keep my teeth white they and look fantastic, been, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's how I've been brushing my teeth for the last few years now. I've never had cavities in my life. So there are alternatives. You know, you can think about these things on how to reduce your single-use plastics in a, in a, in a way that um, you can live with it, you know, in an easy way. It doesn't have to be hard.
3: Maybe you could get toothpaste from the bulk food st- you know, the bulk foods and cosmetics yeah. store. Down the road.
0: Yeah. The one down Smith Street, I think. Yeah. You know. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. They've got tons of everything <laughs> yeah. else. That's a very good It is quite easy to replace those kinds of bathroom yeah. chemicals and even the cleaning chemicals in your house as well if you want to reduce plastic. Yeah. And
0: it is fascinating to think of the total change that you know is ahead of us.
2: Yeah. Well, it has to happen.
0: It has to it happen has because to happen. we've only been doing this shit since, what, the 40s, 50s?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, plastics uh, have been around since the 1920s or so, but really but, the but commercial really the, level is since the 50s. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Fom, thank you very much. That was fascinating. Um, and just, yeah, just another, another reason, as Fom said, to think about our use of plastic. It's just the.
1: Hi, this is Wayne Lynch, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR.
0: Ah, uh, You are back with Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Uh, before those station announcements, we heard gorillas. There was some um, super fast jellyfish. And just a big shout out to Pat from RocksD Records for helping me get a little playlist together over dinner last night.
1: It did well. Yeah. <laughs> well, now we're joined by George and who's a PhD candidate from Curtin University from the Trend Laboratory which is the trace and environmental DNA is what TREND stands for, which is pretty cool in itself. She recently finished her honours thesis where she developed environmental DNA metabarcoding method for signathids and she's just recently started a PhD. I think she's only maybe a month in at the moment. Uh, looking at how environmental DNA metabarcoding can be used to better monitor marine the marine environment focusing on cryptic species such as Cygnathids, deep sea species, which is from the canyons off Exmouth, and how large Antarctic gradients can affect the dispersal of E DNA. So to help us work through a lot of these big words, (laughs) I'd like to welcome George and to the studio. How are you? Thanks for
4: having me. Yeah, good.
1: And you've just been doing a bit of a tour of the east coast of Australia and you're sort of halfway through.
4: Yeah, so I started in Sydney and did a few dives there looking for some weedy sea dragons and then I came down to Melbourne and then tomorrow I'm off to Tassie.
1: And we were lucky enough to get you up early in the morning and come in here. (laughs) Yeah, early on a Sunday
4: morning. Yeah,
1: because we wouldn't be calling you in Western Australia because I'm guessing, what, 6.30 over there at the moment?
4: Yeah, Yeah, about that. Yeah, Yeah. you would not be calling me on a Sunday at
1: 6.30. (laughs) (laughs) So we're very glad to have you in here. So where do we start with the big words? Should we go with signathids first of all? Yeah, sure. What are cygnathids? So
4: cygnathids are a group of fish. They're sea dragons, seahorses, pipefish, the pygmies, all the cool little cryptic stuff like that.
1: And there's quite a few species, isn't there?
4: Yeah, there's a few, yeah. There's a lot of those.
1: And they're, I guess... Part of it, like I know if I've done some um, sampling in Port Phillip Bay and Western Port and you often get them in the seagrass, particularly the pipe Yeah, they hang out in
4: the seagrass a lot. So that's why they're quite hard to find using traditional methods. So your normal surveys, they blend into the seagrass a bit too well. I mean, going diving, looking for them, it takes me a long time before I see one for a pick. But, yeah, so it's a lot easier with the DNA surveys. And
0: S- synathids, th- that word, what does that mean? Is It, is it's like uh, it fused
4: means fused jaw. Right. So they, they filter feeds. they feed on tiny little um, crustaceans with their small little pipe mouths. So, so pi- yeah, all pipe, the...
0: pipe fish are in that group as yeah, well. Yeah,
4: pipefish like... as well. Yeah, they all have really tubular mouths and so, their so jaws are fused pursing together. Your lips
0: and going yeah.
4: Like
0: this. <laughs> <laughs> you just mentioned the word EDNA there too. Yes. We're, we're going
4: to have a
0: deep dive and yeah, explore what that means pretty <laughs> soon. Uh, but, but you said you went diving here yesterday.
4: Yeah. So we went um, down in Mornington. So we went to a few piers down there. I went to Rye Pier. Blair Gowry, yeah, Blairgowrie. I say that right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Portsea and then Flinders Pier. So we saw a juvenile sea dragon and then we saw an adult as well. So that was really special. And are
1: they still cute when you see them even though you've Very seen so cute. many? Yeah, yeah I've seen, I
4: mean in Sydney they were just everywhere but it's still magical when you see one, they're beautiful. So the
0: ones in Sydney, they're the weedy sea dragons yeah, that we have Wheaties here? Yeah, the weedies
4: as well, yeah. So you get weedies um, from about Perth all the way around up to New South Wales and you get them in Tassie as well.
0: And weedies are the ones that have got the, like, almost like sort of paddle camouflage bits on them
4: to make yeah, them so look they, like... Yeah, so they blend in with the seagrass, not as well as the leafy. So the leafy's the one right. that looks I'm literally like a piece yet. of seaweed. Yep. So you're not going to... It's quite hard to see. Whereas the weedy, you can see that quite well. And they're a bit... They're reddy, orangey sort of colour. But, yeah, if you weren't looking properly, they do blend in super well.
0: About finger length to... No, they're, they're
4: about um, 30 to 45 centimetres. Wow. Yeah, wow. We're the one... yeah. <laughs>
0: A okay, gassed is Nerida. Yeah, the one
4: that we saw um, in where was it Flinders Pier? That was huge. That was about forty centimeters. It was beautiful.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nerida's just getting some pictures up here to remind us. Yeah,
4: they're <laughs> gorgeous. Yeah.
0: How many species? I, I Kate, I'm just yeah. You know, like, sorry, totally I, I, I just can't shut up. This morning. We're just having a conversation. <laughs> <Too> many
4: <coffees laughs> How many
0: different? Species of synathids do we have down here? Oh. I mean, like there's, there's the, the weedy and the leafy sea dragon. Yeah, so we've only but got the sea... two
4: sea dragons, but then there's there's hundreds of the pipefish, the seahorses. It's a huge family. There's about over 300, yeah. And the seahorses can
0: get down to really tiny guys, can't they? Yeah, really... yeah, you've got
4: your pygmy seahorses. So some I saw in Sydney, I, I wouldn't have seen them, but uh, Andrew, who I went diving with, he pointed them out and they're about a centimetre. I yeah, was they're never tiny. ever going to see them. them. I had no yeah. hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, and that's, I guess, getting onto the size and the fact mm. that they are so difficult to find. That's where yeah. the environmental DNA comes into it. So we've talked about environmental DNA before on mm-hmm. the show, but just for people out there that haven't heard, what is environmental DNA?
4: Yeah, so eDNA refers to any sort of genetic material that's shed into the environment, so environmental DNA. So every,
1: everyone and everything sheds yeah, DNA? Yeah, so
4: when I look at it, I do water stuff because I'm a marine biologist. But um, So I would get a water sample, and it's all the things that the fish shed. So it's their skin cells, their poop um, or their blood, everything that they shed into the environment. You can pick that up. You might not see it, but it is it's in that water we're swimming in. So you'll take a sample of that and you can detect what species have been in the environment based on that sample. So, yeah, it's really, but really you, cool. So you need
0: to know something about the species in the first place. So you, well, you pick a particular gene, do so you, you, to can, look for? Yeah,
4: so what I did with my honours was we were looking at the big... There's a few metabarcoding fish assays that can detect apparently all of them, universal, quotation marks. But what we found was that they were missing huge groups like the cygnathids. So that was what I worked on, was developing an assay capable of detecting cygnathidose species. Um so yeah, you can go out and use a universal assay, but if you want to be more specific, and especially with these smaller fish species, they get drowned out by large, large sharks, large schooling fish. So yeah, it's better to have an assay in mind.
0: So metabarcoding you mentioned. Yes. That's like taking a particular gene that's in everything, and sequencing a bit of that.
4: Yes. Yeah, so and then you...
0: using that as like a, a barcode.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So they're all barcodes. So you can yeah you can there's a few as I said, universal fish ones, and then you can get a, a huge abundance of what fish were in the environment based on that.
0: And what are those genes?
4: Um, there's, there's countless. So we use 16S primarily for fish ones. We found that the diversity is a bit better in 16S for us.
0: So 16S is something which is like it's in ribosomes, is it?
4: Yeah, so it's a gene region, yeah. And a
0: ribosome yep. is something that every yes. cell has. Yep, so every perfect. cell is going to have one of these 16S yeah. genes. But yeah. so so the sequence will differ genome. between species and you've got to
1: figure out what that... Yeah, so Code what I want to do
4: um, with my PhD, because in my honours I did develop an assay that could detect Cygnathidae species. Can I just assay?
1: Yeah. What's an assay?
4: An assay is a barcode it's region. Sorry, it, yeah. so it's a it's a barcode that you'll develop to try and detect species. So you could get a water sample, but if you don't know what you're looking for, it's a bit useless. So you would develop these assays, we call them, or primers, mm-hmm. and then you can target species based on those. So that's the, that's the hard work, trying to get, develop an assay capable of detecting At, everything you want. Sorry, and so not picking
3: up everything else.
4: Yes, exactly. Y- yeah. So that's yeah. actually what, isolating it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So with my honours, I developed one that could detect signathids, but it detected a whole bunch of other stuff, which kind of drowned my signal out a bit. So what I want to do with my PhD is develop a signathidase-specific assay. So it's not going to get any of these big schooling fish. It's not going to get any of the sharks. It's just going to get signathids. Because they do... They, I mean, they're tiny. If you compare a shark to a cygnathid there's a big difference there, so you will drown it out.
0: How many letters are in that barcode? I mean, how many ACGs and Ts? How many DNA letters?
4: Oh, well, it depends what region you're looking right, for. Okay. So you try and make them shorter because when you get DNA in the environment, it's degraded. Right. You're not going to get and scoop up a whole fish and be like, oh, I'll sequence that because you can it's see the It's genome, it's not going to be <laughs> yeah, intact. exactly. So yeah. you've got these tiny little fragments. So the shorter, the better... But in saying that, the shorter they are, the more other things you're going to pick the up.
0: The less specific they'll yeah. be to that so particular So you need to do organism, a lot yeah. of
4: preliminary work before you can just sort of go out there and just start cool, getting Cool, so that's water, what your
0: yeah. was about, was trying to yes. find a region which is both small but also unique to your particular guys that you're interested
4: in. Yeah, so, yeah, we found that and we got the signathids. I did detect um, seahorses and pipefish in my samples. We didn't get any sea dragons, but we weren't sampling in the region where they found, Um, whereas this time I'm targeting sea dragons, so I'm going to try and develop a more specific assay that's more capable of, yeah, detecting them. Wow. (laughs) To to, to
3: what (laughs) end?
0: To what end? So you want want this assay so you could say, like, there's sea dragons here or not here, it, yeah. is it, it's going to be hard to have proof of...
4: Yeah, the good thing about eDNA absence, is that DNA degrades quickly in the environment. So yeah. degrades, I mean, the max amount of time would be a week. So if you detect something, it's been in that region within a week. Huh. Yeah.
1: Do you have any idea of relative abundance? Is that something that you can do with eDNA?
4: That's kind of the hot topic at the it's moment, a- isn't <laughs> it, is abundance. Yeah. It's quite hard because... You can look at copies of DNA that you find in your samples, but it is—it's super hard to give a quantitative sort of guess on that. But there's a lot of work going on about that at the moment. Huge. Yeah, because I think it, that's the yeah. As
1: you were saying, yeah. like depending on the size of the species yeah. you're looking at would obviously depend on the amount exactly. of DNA that you. So if you've find. got a
4: shark shedding or defecating into the water, and then you've yeah. got a tiny little seahorse, which might. Yeah, I mean, they don't just get a lot of stuff in the a environment. A sort of sideways <laughs> question.
1: If a shark was to eat a seahorse and mm-hmm. then poop into the water, is the DNA of the seahorse still in the poop?
4: Uh, not Does in the Does it deteriorate? Yeah. So once it's gone if through... If you've got gut samples, definitely, so but not that far down. So once down. it's passed through yeah. the body, it's pretty much it's, the DNA it's is... it
0: poop okay. now. Yeah. <laughs> so for, for your PhD now, Georgia, yeah. you're going to scoot around Australia, take water samples from all sorts of fantastic exotic places and, and look for these dudes
4: yeah well i mean i'm only three weeks in so it's been a whirlwind um so <laughs> I, yeah so i i'm
0: gonna see your data already
4: i know so i've been yeah i've been to sydney we did some dives there then i'm down in melbourne and then i go to tassie next week so we're going to do a few dives in tassie and then back in perth i'm going to do the southwest coast of um, wa because we've got a lot down there as well so going to get some samples from there and yeah.
1: And so the collection of the water sample itself, like I take it, you could probably do that from standing on the pier, but you actually do that when you're in yeah, the water. So is there I a reason found, for that?
4: Yeah, well, a part of my honours was on that. So, see, normally what they would get is a surface water sample, but because they are so cryptic and they are benthic creatures, I. Thought, why would you get the surface water? It's Like, I mean, they're 20 metres down, so it might not reach all the way up there. They're quite small.
0: If it is really ephemeral, as you said before, that DNA.
4: Yeah. So I kind of wanted to see if the surface water and the bottom water would have different sort uh of counts of DNA, and I did find in my honours that bottom water was generally better for seahorses because that's that's where they live. You've got that bottom current as well, whereas the surface, it kind of goes around quite a lot. So... Here I am still getting surface water samples, but I did do a lot of bottom water as well.
0: Are you able to show that, say, if you can see a sea dragon in front of you when you're in the water, Mm -hmm. take a sample as opposed to half an hour later or 50 metres away where you can't see any sea dragons around you and you take a water sample, do you see differences in the EDNA between those?
4: Yeah, that's what I'm doing as well. So I did collect samples when I saw them and I marked those out and then I also collected samples just, you know... Away in the sample area, because I want to know, is it? Am I just going to detect them when I see them? Because then that's what's the point of eDNA if it's just a visual survey in the end? So yeah, but in my honours I didn't have that issue, but I did want to also see that as well.
0: It strikes me how powerful this technique is because mm-hmm. when you think of like the you know the, the DNA, the nucleic acids that are going to be there in the water from you know from everything that's been around there for the last couple of hours at mm-hmm. least, from what you say too. Yeah, to be able to Fish out, as it were, or, or to pick out something. Yeah, you have to have some really particular...
4: powerful assays to sort of type t- it. Of down. What kind
0: of gear do you use?
4: Uh, to go get my samples?
0: Uh, no, to like to analyze the idea oh, like your, okay. when
4: you're not yeah. doing the
1: glamorous diving when <laughs> no, we're talking about sequences so the and of, all of that months of yeah. work
4: afterwards um yeah. yeah so we so initially I would develop a primer or an assay in silico so that's just a bunch of computer work and then I would test that out so we use PCR machines sequencing machines extracting machines a lot of machines a lot of gloves a lot of pipetting yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah
0: you'd have to be really yeah, careful about contamination from whatever's yeah. in the lab or yeah
4: yeah that's that's the other thing as well I try to do all my sites on different days and we we are very anal about our cleanliness and trend so we if we go into one lab you can't go in the other lab that day you have to go home in my honours when I was very stressed I would go home I'd have a shower I'd change my clothes I'd come back and do my next samples because yeah you can't go back and forth we're not bringing DNA into that lab yeah yeah yeah, it's really cool
0: (laughs) Georgia, thank you very much for coming awesome. in. thank um,
4: you for having me. All the way over <laughs> from WA. Yeah, thank Especially you for us. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was great. Uh, enjoy your trip to Tassie. Awesome. Thank and you so much. We'd love to check in with you as your PhD is progressing. Definitely. And hopefully you'll be back over this way because, as you said, you won't be answering the phone at 6.30 in the morning. No, maybe no. for a
4: holiday next time. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much, Georgia. Thank you.
1: Hi,
0: I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR, 102.7 FM. Thanks, David. Um, yeah, it's a 3RRR. Uh, and before those station announcements, we heard a nice little and release song called um, Fishing for Fishies by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard um, from their latest album, I do believe. Kate, hey. you We've got going? some time
1: for life to be. We had
0: some time for life to be. I'm, I'm going to talk, talk about something depressing, as I usually do, you know, doom and gloom. Um, but it's not. It's well. It's 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 making us think about what's going to happen in the next couple of decades, which I often try to get us to do. Well, that's what Sunday mornings all about on Triple R, isn't yeah, it? it? Make is, us yeah. think. We should play a bit of Chris Christopherson or something like that <laughs> yeah. to go along with it. Anyway, gl- global shipping. <laughs> um, how much K do you reckon um, global shipping accounts for, like world trade at the moment? yeah, oh, I you know, love get getting stuff around, these kind of questions. We, we, get, we enough, you know, we no. send stuff around the world with alacrity. You know, we we import a heap of stuff from um, North Asia at the moment, well you kind know, of South Asia China, all sorts of places. How much do you reckon? Uh, can I use the the shitload? A shitload. It's eighty percent. Eighty percent percent of world trade. Um, is from shipping. And that has increased amazingly over the last little while. And just a couple of numbers I'm pulling here from... Um, this is a paper which has appeared in Nature Sustainability, which I think is open access online. Anthony Sedan Anthony is the lead author and it appeared just very recently. It's entitled Global Forecasts of Shipping Traffic and Biological Invasions to 2050. Uh, between 1992 and 2012, so in that 20-year period, shipping traffic grew fourfold. Uh, between 2007, the annual growth of growth rate of the global fleet fleet of just say LNG tankers um, was 11%, and it's so liquid nitrogen, liquid nitrogen shipping, nitrogen shipping s- gas s- around. Yeah, so that that's their share of the global fleet fleet went up 11%. China's share of global container throughput surged from um, 1% one and a half percent to 20% between 1990 and 2013. Um, it's increasing amazingly, and these people and the people who have done this study have predicted that by um, 2050 there's going to be at least a four times increase, maybe up to a 15 times increase in global shipping in that period.
1: Aren't we going to run out of
0: plastic toys and maybe we will, TVs maybe.
1: and cheap cars before yeah, then? Or? all of those different
0: things. Uh, these modelers, what they have done, this group, has not only looked at the forecasts for global shipping, and they've done this through pretty cleverly looking at projections in growth domestic product, development in different countries to really get into the data and tease this apart so it's very much an economics paper as well as a sustainability paper as i said it's appearing in Nature sustainability but they're using those data that they're acquiring on predicting what's going to happen with global shipping up until 2050 and using a data set that they generated between um it was 06 to 14 so in that nine year period they got all the data on the shipping that that was happening around the world. I just want to read... It's sometimes interesting to go into the methods of these papers to see actually how they did it. So what they did was that they... um so they got all the shipping data movements from IHSC web between '06 and 2014 inclusive and this was voyages of 81,000 ships separated into seven different um, types of ships. They even went to the National Ballast Information Clearinghouse database which albeit only does it for the United States ships but they uh, account for a lot of them um, and they calculated the amount of ballast that was being dumped and picked up in various ships between 2006 and 2018. And then they get all the weather maps and all sorts of stuff, as well as the the data on the economics of these countries and the projections. And they used all of this. They chucked it all together in this big-ass model to figure out what the projected increase in global shipping is going to be. That they've overlaid with predictions of how we're going to get, in, you know, the more invasive species that get and moved around. So you are talking about ballast. There. Ballast. Ballast. We've talked on this program before about phytoplankton, well, okay. for example. Yep. Other things like the Northern Pacific Sea Star, the larvae of that might have even come across in ballast water. But that's the
1: water that the ships take on board yeah. during... So, wa- for
0: example, the tanker, LNG tanker, for example, with its um, bringing gas or taking gas from Australia, taking it to Asia as it's coming back empty, it will be full of ballast water. So yeah. it will be ballast that will fill into its tanks and once it gets here, it will discharge that. We were talking about eDNA before um, yes. and that is one way of detecting if there are any nasties in there. Nasties being things like certain types of plankton like dinoflagellates that cause paralytic shellfish poisoning and also we have sea stars and specific sea star, the northern Pacific sea star. Uh, lots of different things. Um, so not only in ballast water but also like in packing containers, things get shipped at like... so pathogens so things that are going to invade land as well as not just the marine environment um stuff that comes across and a really good example we've just got a couple of minutes left and one good example of one of these things which has been spread around the world which has led to the big demise of one group that group is the amphibians so you've got the frogs and all their relatives um there has been, a, I think, 59 species. This is another paper which has appeared very recently, um, and this is in the latest edition of Nature, as I... Um, no, it's actually in the latest edition of Science. And... This has happened in the last 30 or 40 years through the global traffic in amphibians. So people sharing different amphibians, sending them around the place. And early on through pregnancy tests, they were using one type of amphibian called the African claw toad frog. That got sent around the world a lot. And they were carrying with them this pathogen, a thing called a chytrid fungus, tiny little fungus. Um, And that lives in the skin of amphibians, native to Asia. But when it gets off into non into species which haven't been used to seeing it, it's been killing them off. Particularly the the ones which live, which are, which the amphibians which are highly dependent upon water for most of their life life cycle, um, and larger ones. It's a huge decline in amphibians um, over the last 30 years. It doesn't look like it's getting any better. This is because of world trade, and world trade through shipping is going to increase dramatically, as we would probably imagine if we sit and think about it, but this is the first kind of model which has sat down, accumulated all those different data, got them together and said, yeah, this is most likely what's going to happen, so we have to be very careful and use things like eDNA to check ballast water, screen um, packaging materials that get on ships and, yeah, consume a lot less, as Nera said. Um, We'd better get out of here for the doctor's
2: this has been a podcast from Free Triple one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.